welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Uh, I'm here with Joshua Gordon, who's the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Hi, Joshua. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. So you gave one of the keynotes here at the MQ meeting, and you also participated in the panel discussion. That's right. Can we move the needle on mental illness, which is a kind of um, response to Tom Insull, your predecessor's blog, recent blog in Psychology Today. Um, and you made a comment in that, which I thought was really interesting, where you were talking about how we can inspire researchers and get researchers to produce research that is relevant to clinicians and to practice. Talk a bit about that for us. So I think we have a responsibility as a funding agency to try to emphasize the research that will have impact. And often, I think people make the mistake to think that impactful research has to be clinical research or it has to have immediate public impact. But we actually look at our research across the portfolio, whether we're talking about basic neuroscience, whether we're talking about translational studies in human beings, or whether we're talking about application studies in clinical populations, we want each of those areas to have impactful research that's really designed with questions of relevance to psychiatric illness in mind. So if people are studying a basic neurobiologic process, we want to encourage the kind of work that's asking questions that eventually will answer important, clinically relevant uh, issues that uh, that will change practice. What would be helpful for our listeners would be maybe if you could give us some examples of some of the neuroscience, some of the psychiatric genomics, some of the kind of computational science that you spoke about in your talk that is having a practical, real impact on frontline practice. Sure. Well, let me start with genomics because I think that's already starting to impact practice although its best impact is still years away. In genomics, we are beginning to understand what we call the structure of genetic risk, that is, what the landscape in our genome tells us about our likelihood to to contract a mental illness. In autism, we know that there are a number of different genes which... If any of them are disrupted in you, you have a, a dramatically increased chance of, of having autism. That is hopefully going to yield treatments down the road, but right now we don't have any. Nonetheless, it is directly impactful because if we can identify a gene in a child, we can tell the parents, hey, your child has autism because of this particular factor. It's not necessarily going to change how we treat the child. It's not necessarily going to change the outcome. But understanding is a powerful thing that really does help families and individuals suffering from mental illness. And so if we can provide that understanding, that's of clinical relevance. So where do you see that? So where do you see that kind of, in terms of treatment impacts? happening most quickly. So a lot of work here in the UK is looking at the genetics of anxiety and depression, really trying to work out you know, more personalized, focused treatment. Right. Is that the area that you think is going to first bear fruit? Yeah, so I, I think helping us use our existing treatments better is going to be the first impact of the work that we're doing now. Uh, so I'll switch from genomics to computation for a moment. We have treatments that work reasonably well, for example, in depression. We have medications, we have psychotherapies, we have other, other methods to improve the lives of people who suffer from depression, but they only work in something around 50 to 60% of people 
who have depression any one treatment. And, uh, and we don't know which treatment is going to work best for which person. So the, in, in reality, in clinical practice out there, a, a patient comes to a doctor seeking help for depression, and the doctor says, you know, I've got three different treatments to offer you, and I can't tell which one's going to work, so tell me which one sounds good to you. <laughs> or tell me which side effects you want to avoid. There's no way I can know as a doctor to tell my patient which one is likely to work for them. But we can use big data approaches, computational approaches, to study lots of people with depression, ask what's different about people with different kinds of depression, and use that information to try to predict who's going to respond to a medication versus who's going to respond to psychotherapy, for example. And we're seeing the beginnings of that kind of work. The results are very promising. We're not there yet. But we hope that you know, in the near term, we're going to see tests, things that we can do to differentiate people who are going to respond to one versus another treatment. And that would have real clinical impact. It's not going to create novel therapies, but it's going to help us do better job with the therapies that we have. Okay. And you presented some really interesting data on uh, use of ketamine uh, in people with depression. Um, tell us about that, because that was really compelling. And so ketamine is a drug that has been used for a long time for anesthesia, particularly in children. But it was shown actually quite some time ago that giving intravenous ketamine can help people suffering from depression. And this is something that the NIMH has been uh, funding and actually uh, in our own laboratories, uh, people have been researching it. And we've shown most recently that it can reduce your depressive symptoms and it can reduce suicidal thoughts in a matter of hours and it can last for days to weeks. And that's number one led to the recognition that we can use this existing drug for treatment of depression, but also led to companies developing analogs. Um, so we're going to have hopefully what is a, a, a number of new options for individuals suffering from depression that work much more rapidly than existing antidepressants or psychosocial treatments. So current therapies that are available take weeks to work, and, and this takes hours. And how do you, finally, how do you kind of ensure that the questions that you're researching are the questions that matter to people with lived experience of mental health? Well, one of the best ways to ensure that the questions we ask are relevant to those suffering from mental illnesses is to involve them in the planning process. So at the U.S. National Institute of Mental Health, we have individuals with lived experience on our advisory council. They participate in policy-making decisions. They actually give advice on which grants to fund. Um, we also have a number of other ways of seeking input from individuals in the community. One of the one of one of the uh, one of the partnerships that we really value value is a partnership with a coalition of advocacy organizations. We meet with them uh, all the time and hear from them about what the issues are that matter to them. Talk to them about the research that we're doing and get feedback in terms of whether that it's, it's addressing real problems that concern individuals with uh, with illnesses thanks a lot for talking to me thank you